Well, thank you for uh, the kind of rousing worship song as we go into a time in the Word of God. I want to turn your attention to Matthew 18 this morning. Matthew 18, continuing in our series on sacrificial rescue. Sacrificial rescue. If uh, you've ever seen and experienced someone who would be walking away from the Lord and then who comes back in any context, it becomes an unforgettable story. Uh, something that you just can't explain other than the interventional, interventional grace of God. How did that person ever come back? person was straying, was wandering away like a wandering sheep, but... I mean, you just see it in your mind's eye if you know of someone who's straight away from the Lord, in sin, confused, and God, by his mercy, interrupts a trajectory that would be going into destruction and reroutes that person back home. It's amazing. It is the picture of the gospel. Uh, This section that we're looking at this morning, verses 15 to 20, is classically known as the church discipline section of the New Testament, of the Bible. It's the process of confronting. It's the process of working brother to brother, or if it's women, sisters to sisters, and brothers and sisters confronting sins, talking through things that are very awkward, very difficult, time-consuming, and heavy, And yet it is the work of God within the church to bring people back to the full. It's the ministry of restoration or ministry of reconciliation. It's what I've titled sacrificial rescue. And that being uh, the combining of verses 10 through 20, the scene that you can very easily see about little ones, which we've been talking of, new Christians who might wander away under... um, just a wrong thinking or a wrong leader or a wrong direction or a relapse into how that person just used to live, something that they relapsed back into and they're wandering away. And then the picture of someone that goes and leaves the 99 sheep up on the mountains and goes for the one. Verse 13, he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. It's not the will of the Father. That one of these little ones should perish. God's very intentional about his children. He wants his children to be safe. He wants them to be um, secure in the gospel, in their footing and foundation of what they believe. And this plays into our participation within the church. This is very, very practical Bible text that we need to think about. What is your role within the body of Christ brother to brother, bringing things up, having hard conversations to in prayer and in unity and connection with other believers in the church to try to call people back to faithfulness. Uh, This section, as we've been talking about, is a section of values. It's what Christ values within his kingdom. We talked about Christ-like humility. He values humility. True greatness is being like a child, verses 1 to 6, in your heart, humble before God, totally dependent. Verses 7 to 9, speaking of holiness, radical amputation, where you're willing to cut things out of your life, reroute your life as if you're amputating arms and legs and gouging out your eye, uh, spiritually speaking, to say, I am a repentant believer and I love holiness, Sacrificial rescue, we're talking about that with the shepherd sheep analogy. And then verses 15 to 20 talks about the affection for holiness, affectionate holiness. And then verses 21 to 35 next time will be unconditional forgiveness, forgiving people 70 times seven, just ongoing forgiveness in in the body of Christ, in the church. For us to look at a section like this and say, why in the world would we ever want to make somebody feel awkward and go after somebody to help them with the Bible? Why would we ever want to do that? Well, it's because we love God and God is holy. He's a lot of things. Love, I mean, he's, he's gracious, he's faithful, he's all these things. He's holy, holy, holy God. And when you become a Christian a switch is turned on in your heart. It should be. 
where you love holiness. You didn't love it before, not in the way that you do now. You might love some things generically or, or kind of, uh, you know, love beauty and love, you know, things and, and hate, you know, destructive things in the world. But there becomes a very acute, sensitive new thing in your heart where you go, I love holiness where Jesus says in Matthew 5, be holy as your heavenly father is holy. First Peter uh, 1.15, be holy as I am holy. You love holiness. Yeah, holiness makes us feel uncomfortable in terms of how sinful we are, but we love the purity of God. We love the fact that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We, we love holiness. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is holy. The church should reflect that witness to the world. Our love for God, our love for holiness should be reflected in the world. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, we're like a cleansed church from all defilement, bringing holiness and completion to the, in the fear of God. Holiness is the sum and substance of God's character. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. The word sanctifies us, makes us holy. Psalm 119, 140, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. We love being convicted. Otherwise, why would you be here? Why would you sit under this? It's not just dealing with me and whatever I am to you as a communicator. I bring a lot of Bible. So if you're coming to a place where there's a lot of Bible, there's a lot of accountability. And with that, you're, you're being refined. You're being called out by the Holy Spirit in ways that can be uncomfortable. But deep down, you want this. You, you're going, I want to deal with my sin and I want to be holy. There's something in me that God is working to reflect his character in terms of holiness. 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul said he had a divine jealousy for the church to present the church as a pure virgin. Ephesians 5.25, the word of God is pictured as the cleansing agent to sanctify the bride, which is the church. Sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. Colossians 1.22, that the church one day, though by being reconciled in Christ, one day it can be presented as a holy and blameless people. Holiness is expected. Holiness is commanded. Holiness is messy. Holiness, the pursuit of holiness, means you have to confront your own life. The pursuit of others who are wandering away means you have to confront their lives and their hearts. Luke 15, 3 through 8 is the the two-pronged parables of uh, holiness and the desire for rescue. We read of the parable of the lost sheep already in Matthew 18, verse 10 and following. Luke 15, 3 says the same thing, accenting it a little bit stronger. Um, So he told the parable, verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. When he is founded, he lays it on his shoulder, shoulders, listen to this, rejoicing. There's joy in this process. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, rejoice with me. We're going to throw a party. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. There's joy. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons or legalistic people. People who don't care about repenting. Jesus calls them those who need no repentance. In other words, they're too hardened to repent. But then the other parable, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. This parable is the story of my life. I get fixated. I want that thing, you know. It's, it's down in the crevice. I'm going to go for it. Well, it's that kind of urgency for holiness, You want holiness in the church because it brings joy. And holiness is not perfectionism. Holiness is not getting all your merit badges. No offense to to anybody who gets merit badges. I'm just saying it's not external. Holiness is the love for restoration. I want you to see that. To be holy as God is holy. To want holiness. to To set Christ apart in your heart as Lord. 
is, is the process of going after people in love. You want people to be right with God in their life. You want them to be working on their sin in radical repentance. You want people to be working on being restored, sacrificial rescue. This is also the text before us that has been called biblical church discipline. Call it biblical restoration or discipline. It's two-sided coin. The word discipline, by the way, is also a word that we get the same English derivation from to disciple. Nobody has a problem with discipling in the church. Oh, we should be a discipleship church. Churches love discipleship. They love community building. They, they love that because it's attractive and it's soul care. But part of good discipleship is healthy discipline. It's uh, the father who Hebrews 11 speaks of. You discipline the ones you love. What does that mean? That means you go after people. You're shepherding their hearts. You're bringing them right with God. This is a love for holiness. Listen to our text, beginning at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. But where two or three are gathered in my name, where or there am I among them? Four steps of this process of discipline are laid out pretty clearly. I'll just walk through them and open the text up. It's a simple pattern for the church to follow. We are a church that believes in this process. We're constituted to do this process. But we need to just follow the Lord's leading here. This is a spiritual process. Four steps. First of all, step one. It's the believer's responsibility to confront any other believer within the church. And say, well, I thought it was the pastor's job. It's what we pay you for. Just go have the awkward conversations. I don't need to do that. Awkward. Yeah, as shepherds, we're overseers. We love the sheep. It's been said you're supposed to smell like sheep. You, you get down in the trenches. I understand that. Um, pastoring is, um, it is portrayed as the shepherd who would leave the 99 and go after the one. Uh, but this metaphor, this parable is not just for the shepherd, the pastor, the overseer, the elder. It's a team exercise where all are to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. This is where you roll up your sleeves and really get after it in the church. Say, how can I help the church? How can I work in the church? Do this. Do this. It's the, and just bear with me, it's a little bit of a domestic metaphor, but it's sort of a self-cleaning oven uh, factor. I don't understand that stuff. It's amazing. You push a button and it's cleaning itself. But what I do understand is within the church, there is a, the church should be warming up and, and working with each other in this process all the time because people get caught in a trap. I've never been caught in a bear trap, nor do I ever want to even imagine what that would be like. Um, chances probably are a lot higher here in this state that that would happen rather than any other place. But if you've ever been caught or stuck or your foot's been wedged, it, it can be disconcerting. People all over the place within church life are stuck in little traps. They're, they're in quagmires. They can't, you know, can't get their foot unstuck from something that's got them ensnared in their life. They're misguided in their thinking. They're going in the wrong direction. They're involved in sin habits. And it's not just what they do, but it's why they do what they do and how they're thinking about what they're doing and who's telling them whatever about it being okay. They have to be helped. They have to be rescued. Galatians 6.1. Look at this. This is Paul's synthesis and application of Matthew 18. I love it. It's, it's just brilliant. 
brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, stop there. I mean, it's so practically clear with each word. Brothers, meaning just anybody in the church, brothers, sisters, regenerate ones, believers, family members. That's Paul. Family members. If anyone, any one of you, there's no hierarchy in in this, any one of you is caught. If you're stuck in any transgression, any sin, there's not a sin that's out of bounds that we can't talk to each other about. Either too sensitive, too crazy, or too minuscule. We're supposed to talk to each other about each other's stuff. Any, you who are spiritual, be spiritually minded. Get in the Holy Spirit. It says, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Why are you going to condemn, judge? No, to restore, to build back, to set a right, to open that trap and get that, get that foot out. You're just doing that work to help that person out in gentleness with the spirit of restoration. And you keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. I mean, that whole verse is like a philosophy of ministry paper. Uh, When you go and you try to work with somebody, there's temptations. You can be lulled to sleep and say, well, the sin really isn't that bad. Why am I dealing with this? Oh, this is too hard. I'm not making any headway. I'm going to let it go. Or you begin to go, you know what? That sin, it looks appetizing for me. So I'm going to join. If you can't beat them, join them. So Paul's saying this process is for everybody, for any sin. It has to be done spiritually minded with the spirit of gentleness, with the motive to restore, with a circumspection, introspection to your own heart and life while you do it. So you're not led astray in the process. That's Galatians 6, 1 verse, 6, 1. The goal of repentance is restoration. It's a lot of times very informal. Step one is the informal brother-to-brother process that's going on in the church all the time. I think it was asked to me this week, why do most church discipline proceedings end with someone in a departure? You know, once it reaches third stage three where it's public or stage four where there's sort of a, a disfellowshipping or um, excommunication, why don't they come back? Well, in one sense, step one is a success story all the time. There's a lot of confrontation, restoration that's going on in the church all the time. Uh, Just by coming to church, by the way, it's like you're putting yourself within the guardrails of of the highway. Um, Because there's accountability just by hearing the word, by showing up, you're doing stuff in your own heart uh, while you're here that I'll never know about, don't need to know about, that the Holy Spirit's working in your life, or a friend or a brother or sister is asking you questions to prompt you to repent of things and talk about things. That's step one. That's a success story all the time. Step two is where someone's stuck and we, we have to invite more people in. And you see this in verse 16. But if he does not listen, listening with your ears, the ears of your heart, uh, the word of God is like the sun, the same sun that melts the wax, hardens the clay. You're either hardening or softening all the time in this process. And so this person at this stage is not listening. So you take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidences of two or three witnesses. This is standard operating procedure in stuff. I mean, memory is faulty. We recollect things to our own advantage. We have our own biases. We have our own opinions. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We hear things. We think we understand things. We perceive things where we're trying to confront somebody and we just don't quite get it. And then other people listen in and a lot of times they can they can help balance out in the multitude of counselors, there's wisdom and things just get clearer and clarified through witnesses accounting for the interaction. They don't have to have, I don't think they have to have observed the sin before the moment, but now they're brought into the proceedings for health, for protection, for care in the conversation, for accountability so that things stay toned down emotionally in the moment and, and things are a little more serious and formal at this point. This is based on the use of uh, scripture in Deuteronomy 17, 6 and um, 19, 15. The law called for the evidence of two or three witnesses with high stakes um, trials in the Old Testament. And Paul applied this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. If you'll look with me, it's like the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. And he's, he's calling upon the church. Again, to put away immorality. 
and sensuality in verse 1 of chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's going, we've done stage one. We've done stage two with two or three witnesses. Everything I've talked about with you has to be established in the witness of the council here. And I'm coming again. It's the formal warning for people to be restored. It's still a restoration process. But it's now become a concentric circle out from just one person. So now you're inviting more people to help. But then the third stage. The third stage you see is now in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. You say, why would you ever do that? You know, isn't that defaming someone's character? Well, I guess it depends on how you view the church. The church is the family of God. You have to start there. It's brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers in the body of Christ where we are with each other. We're under the word of God. We're caring for each other spiritually. And it's really a church meeting on that level where you're telling the church is a family meeting where you're calling people together saying, listen, we've got this brother or sister who we've been working. It's an indeterminate um, period of time between step one, step two, and step three. It's not just three meetings. <laughs> it's not, it, it's usually a lot of step one and a lot of work, a lot of prayer, a lot of heart rending time. Step two, and you're, you're raising the standard a little bit and you're trying to get to that person's heart. Now we've come to step three where we have to call a family meeting and say, our dear brother or sister has strayed away from the Lord and it's clear from witnesses and evidences and, and time in the seat with them that they're not repenting and they're refusing. They're refusing this accountability. So I want the whole church to go after that brother or sister, meaning in a spirit of restoration and in a full court press of love, not to pressure, but to love and to be clear. It protects the church in terms of unity. Everybody is on mission. Everybody knows the direction we're going. There isn't people choosing up sides for the person's sin or not sin. It's clear. It's clear to the leadership. It's clear to the church. And we're going in a spirit of restoration. It doesn't mean every conversation you have with that person has to be about the sin issue. And, you know, can you have them over? Can you, how do you treat them? Uh, you just have to navigate with a motivation that you understand that person is straying and needs help. And scripture can be brought to bear to rescue that person in their situation. Restoration is necessary and the elders are working with the flock at this point in this process in concert together for an undetermined period of time of testing. Then it leads, if that person does not repent, to the final step of discipline. This is step four. And it says, if he refuses, verse 17, to listen even to the church, even to the group, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is a declaration of clarification. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, which that whole chapter is a, is a story about church discipline. Um, the person there is titled in, in the New American Standard Bible, a so-called brother. It's someone who professes to be a Christian, professes to be a believer, on paper is a Christian, but their life is absolutely outing that person as a straying sheep. Where every conversation is, is, is sort of in the background, you're just wondering, is that person going to come back? And, and they don't at such a period of time that you have to, for clarity's sake, for their clarity and your clarity, say, I'm not sure you're a Christian, that you were ever a Christian in the first place. A Gentile is someone who is, in this context, Jesus is saying is a pagan. Somebody who's outside, was outside of Judaism and has not come to the Messiah. That's a Gentile in this context. We know that the Lord brought in Jew and Gentile together to be one body. And so we kind of reframe the idea of Gentile. You, as a believer, you don't have to be an ethnic Jew, obviously. But here, a lot of ethnic Jews were around Jesus and he was, and he was affirming himself and many were following him as Messiah. And so he's saying, if you're outside of that, it's like you're a pagan. And say, why would you want to treat somebody like a pagan or a Gentile, or a tax collector, somebody who's, you know, a tax collector was pejorative in that sense. They were an oppressor. Well, it's 
saying to someone that you can't play church. You can't have it both ways. You can't have one foot of affirmation in the church and then you're living in rebellion in the world. It's confusing to the church. It's confusing to the body of Christ. It is potentially something that will fracture the church because people will say, well, was this sin really that bad at all? I guess we're just covering it in love and so we're just forgetting about it or sweeping it under the carpet. It can weaken the church. It weakens the testimony for holiness, for its witness in the world. It's, it's, it's sort of pronouncing some sort of fake forgiveness on someone that covers it as if they're okay when they really aren't. And it's really an unloving thing to do to someone because if they're believing they're safe within the confines of church as if it's their safe room of religion, then if they're really in jeopardy, really in spiritual danger, they need to be told where they really are or are not. And so this is a way in stage four to to limit or take away the benefits that they've enjoyed of the local church by saying you need to be delivered out into the world. It's a disfellowshipping. It is what's called excommunicating someone. It's declaring to them that they aren't a from our perspective, a, a affirmed and affirmed spiritual member of the body of Christ. We just can't affirm that. You, you've strayed so long and you've proven yourself to be refusing accountability for so long and the scripture is so clear about the sin that you won't repent of that we are calling it as a leadership and as a collective body that we are concerned and we want you to come to Christ We want you to repent, but the way that we're calling you to repentance is we're saying you need to leave the house and go out into the world. And 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is the picture of this. The language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5 is that such a one should be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that he'll be saved in the last day. You say, what? Why, what? Why would we at all be working with the devil? (laughs) Well, Satan is the enemy of God. Scripture calls him the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the father of lies. He's the tempter. And God in his sovereignty has made it in such a way where there are two kingdoms here. And we've talked about that. It's a two kingdom dynamic. The church on earth is the physical picture of the embassy of heaven. It's God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the place where we experience heaven on earth in terms of relationships, friendships, bearing each other's burdens, praying for one another, seeing conversions, hearing testimonies from the waters of baptism. We commune with God in a special way through the symbols of communion. We have, we have people who are saying, I am a believer and I'm fighting my sin together with you. To corrupt that and make it indistinguishable for someone where they're allowed to participate in that and live like the world at the same time jeopardizes the clarity of the church's mission and it weakens the witness that we need to have towards that straying brother or sister. To make it very clear, it's allowing someone to prodigal themselves where they leave the family. And they, had, they go in to test the world and spend all their money and have all their um, props taken out from under them spiritually where they are given over to the pressures of Satan's world. And it literally destroys their flesh. It eats away at their joy. It eats away at their money. It eats away at their opportunities, usually in a way that God is working using the world, just like how Babylon would go after Israel or Assyria. And he would use pagan nations to purify and clarify their paganism, their idolatry, and put them in exile until they would come back purged and pure. That's the process of step four. You say it's unloving. It's the most loving thing you can do is to clarify someone's spiritual condition to themselves. I heard about this just yesterday. I was talking to family members and they were talking about other friends of theirs who confronted their um, wayward adult child. and, And the mother said, you know, I don't know. Are you a Christian? And it immediately put walls up and it's so difficult, you know, and so challenging. And why would you ever say that? But if you speak the truth in love, it can be the most loving thing that jolts a person back into 
um, or into the kingdom for the first time. It's like defibrillator paddles, just poof, hitting the heart. Needs to happen. Hearts are either softening or hardening in stage three. And stage four is saying the heart is really, really hardening up at this point. What happens when a straying individual comes back? They are restored. It's the joy of heaven. It's why I read the Luke 15 account. I mean, it's, there is a party. It is amazing. It is the validation that grace upon grace is given to all of us. Everybody's humbled when somebody who's a straying sinner repents and comes all the way back, rights, duties, and privileges a lot, is restored. Everything's restored in terms of spiritual brotherhood and sisterhood, but the applications of that would be determined case by case in terms of how and, and, and when people can serve in the way that they did before. But it doesn't matter. It's all within the swelling joy of restoration. You say, what about verses 18 through 20? These three verses have been dislodged from, dislodged from this process but I think they shouldn't be. A lot of times people turn verses 18 to 20 into like, how do you make a Bible study very powerful? Well, you make sure you have two or three gathered and then there's an especial presence and then you can claim things. That's not what this is talking about at all. This is talking about the dignity, sobriety and gravity of church discipline and biblical restoration. Verse 18, truly, that's a connecting word. Jesus is saying, what I've just said, I'm saying amen to. I'm verifying that. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does he mean there? He means that as we do things here on earth in local church ministry with biblical confrontation and restoration, God is doing things simultaneously in heaven. Our declarations are in concert with God's declarations. As we are observing with two or three witnesses in the word of God, with a leadership team, with the church, someone's heart and calling them to restoration, God is observing that heart. This is not popery. This is not the Roman Catholic Church pronouncing edicts on people in terms of the state of their heart or not. This is spiritual dealings where we're trying to work with people with the word of God and have people open up and repent of sin and and reconsecrate themselves in their convictions and their belief and their walk. But what's promised here is that as we do this hard work, God's doing the work with us at the same time. That's the promise. That church restoration, biblical restoration, sacrificial rescue is a sacrifice. It is hard. It's the hardest work you can do within the church. It's why everyone wants to be more of a consumer in American evangelicalism or American church. They want to just show up, evaluate the preacher, evaluate his suit, you know, evaluate the worship. How'd it go? Will I come back? Will I not? Will I give? Will I want? You know, I mean, that, that's a consumer-minded person. Contrary to that, it's gathering in the name of God who is holy and participating in this work where we are helping God's witness work within the world through participating in biblical sacrificial rescue, church discipline. And God is helping us do that. Look at the language here. Um, Whatever you bind on earth, this right here is a, um, a future middle. Whatever you're doing within the church where you're saying, you know, I really think that person, I'm declaring that person bound, that person's hardened up. Or, you know, I'm really observing, we're observing as a group, that person is repenting. Whatever you're observing there, it's sort of a middle tense, meaning it's participatory. We're just doing it dynamically together and observing. Whatever you're doing there, and then that's connected to a future passive, shall be bound in heaven. The language would be, shall have been bound in heaven. Future, but it's already done. What does that mean? Well, it's language of God's sovereignty. How does all that work out? What we're doing, God's already done in his mind and will, and he's pronouncing it as so as we do it. (laughs) I don't know if you followed that, but that's the language. That's the grammatical, circuitous way that he's talking. We're doing things dynamically down here on earth, and God's will is working out through his sovereign purposes, and he is agreeing with us, And his will is being done. And it's being finalized. It's very grave. Whatever's bound is bound. Whatever's loosed is loosed. 
People are binding up and being set free all the time with the trap. The trap is on the ankle. It's either coming free or it's snapping harder. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. He's talking about discipline. The two or three, the two witnesses, the three, we're, we're in concert together over this. And God is putting his stamp of approval on it from heaven. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. God's special presence is promised in this process. All of that was lead in to six points I still want to make in five minutes. (laughs) These are straightforward steps from Matthew 18. But let's just take take a ride Um, through the New Testament, and I want to show you what this looks like in New Testament teaching. There's six things that um, happen within a church that practices discipline, six things. Number one, and these are philosophical statements, they're a little bit drawn out, just bear with me. Number one, biblical church discipline restoration glorifies God and proves obedience to Christ. You want to give glory to God, we do this. A lot of churches don't. They're afraid of lawsuits. They're afraid of um, legal judgment. What about giving glory to God and just obeying? Let's just obey. Let's cooperate with God. Trust him. There were divisions and laziness in the New Testament um, times. Uh, Romans sixteen seven. There were those who caused divisions and create obstacles. And Paul said, avoid them. It's a form of discipline. First Thessalonians 5.14, admonish the idle. There were people who didn't want to work. Second Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. If anyone is not willing to work, verse 10, let him not eat. They're busybodies. They are walking in idleness, verse 6. What are you supposed to do? Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. A lot of people didn't want to work then. A lot of people don't want to work today. Laziness is a cultural thing. Idleness is a real thing. People don't want to show up to work. They don't want to do fair work for fair pay. It's just reality. But the church is not supposed to leave each other alone in that. We're supposed to pursue people. You say, I don't want to take on a heavy-duty sin. What about your lazy friend? Just take them out and say, hey, how's your work life? Let's talk about it. These are serious sins. Division is a very serious sin. Division can happen within a church. That's why it's so important to do public discipline so that everyone may fear, all may fear. Um, When a pastor or leader is in sin, you bring the evidences of of two or three witnesses. First Timothy 5, 19 and 20, you go right to step two in this process. Uh, You don't want to just confront somebody um, in a cavalier way, one-on-one to a spiritual leader. You bring witnesses. It's something that's really thought through because the stakes are really high when you're confronting a leader. But it's important to do that because if they persist in sin, you rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. These high stakes rebukes need to be shared amongst the whole church so everybody is warned by that sin. False teaching has to be confronted Severely and quickly, First Timothy 6, 3 through 5, different doctrines, doctrines that puff people up in conceit, people who are craving for controversy, quarrels, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people, depraved in mind, deprived in the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. Uh, all those sins that I'm listing can happen in the church. They have to be called out and smoked out. And someone who becomes public, as a public leader and, and is leading division, they need to be dealt with with very clear speed and alacrity. Titus 3, 10 and 11, a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with them. It's one thing for somebody to be isolated in their sin and contained, but it's another thing if that sin starts to spread like gangrene or cancer and metastasize amongst the church members, and and people begin to have suspicion on all that's going on and why things are happening, that person has to be warned once than twice and disciplined severely. Verse 11, it says, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Baptist theologian John Dagg, he said, A shepherd who won't fend off wolves will soon find a sheep consumed. 
Again, the largest story in scripture is 1 Corinthians 5. We don't have time to go into it, but it was someone who was into incestuous sexual immorality, had his father's wife. And Paul said that this is something that's not even named amongst the Gentiles. The the Gentiles wouldn't even want to talk about something this grotesque. And so we have to deal with it. He was shocking people saying that if we don't deal with it, it's like a little leaven, eleven the whole lump. We kind of touched on this already. He delivered that person, saying, deliver that person over to Satan for the destruction of that person's flesh so that they will be saved in the end. Saved in the day of the Lord. Number two, biblical church discipline and restoration as a goal is to reclaim those who have veered from the path of obedience. We've talked about that already. It's always restoring the, def- the offender. People say, I'm being singled out. I'm being isolated. I'm being picked on. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you sinning against me in this process? And the process, if it's done biblically, is always meant to restore, to reclaim people. Calvin said, although the excommunication punishes the man, it does so in such a way by way of forewarning him of his future condemnation. It it may be that he's called back to salvation. It's called back to the gospel. Number three, biblical church discipline restoration maintains the purity of the church and her worship in specific view towards the avoidance of profaning the elements of the Lord's Supper. The ultimate hypocrisy is to take the Lord's Supper when you're in sin. It's dangerous to do that. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven warns against that. Eating and drinking the bread and the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let him examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. That's why many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. God just ends people's lives here. and Maybe brings them to heaven. Because they're profaning the Lord here on earth. Bad conduct is infectious. False doctrine to accommodate bad conduct is infectious. It's wrong. Remember in the early church in Acts chapter 5, you have the apostolic discipline of Ananias and Sapphira where they're standing in front of Ananias and Sapphira on two separate, I mean, they're standing before Peter on two separate events. And they're saying, we've sold off all our property and we're giving you all the money. And it wasn't that whether or not they gave all their money away or not, it's that they're lying about how much they were giving. And they did it together. They were in cahoots with each other. And Peter saw through it and said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse three of chapter five. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell dead. He breathed his last men, carried him off. After three hours, verse seven, Peter said to the wife, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Tell me if you're going to lie just like Ananias did. And she did. Yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? This is what's going on in discipline when people lie and run. You're testing the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at the feet, at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man, uh, men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her outside beside her husband. Listen to the effects of this. Two things happen. And this is what happens when a church practices church discipline and it gets out that the church is practicing church discipline, which by the way, we're very public with live stream, et cetera. It says, verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So number one, everybody's being purified and circumspect in their own hearts. That's one effect. There's actually three effects here. It says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. It's uh, evidence of the Holy Spirit working. And they were all together at Solomon's portico. So they're in a public arena. Verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them. It kept people from joining the church. Nobody wanted in if you're going to die for lying. We, don't, we know ourselves. We, we're not always going to be super clear on, you know, our, on our taxes or whatever. You know, we're not going to always tell the truth. But the people held them in high esteem. They didn't want to join, but look at that. The end of verse 13, they respected the church. 
because they mean business in terms of their integrity. People die if they lie. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men, both men and women. So how did the church grow? It grew by doing church discipline, by holding the standard, by calling sin, sin. Number four, biblical church discipline and restoration vindicates the honor and integrity of Christ and Christianity by exhibiting fidelity to its believers. Uh, What this means is people are gracious to each other. Um, Church discipline should not be judgmentalism. It's not condemning people um, as if they have no hope. When people are restored, they need to be fully restored. And that full restoration is another massive testimony of the gospel to a community. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, 6 to 8. Listen to this verse. Paul said, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. It's enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. I heard this verse 25 years ago explained to me for the first time in a worship service where I was candidating to be an associate pastor as a 26-year-old new graduate at a seminary. I went to the church and I was hosted there that Sunday evening to you know, experience the church for the first time. It's like the first worship service I think I went to was that Maybe that morning and then that, that evening, but it was, it was memorable. I'm there. The preacher got up, and he introduced a, a young woman in her young 20s who began to stand and cry in the pulpit, and her father was behind her. And she was confessing that she had repented of being impregnated out of wedlock. And her father was there affirming her, standing with her, loving her, and it was powerful. And it's like 25 years ago. It still moves me today. And I was just sitting there and I'm going, man. And she's quoting Philippians 2 and talking about Jesus becoming, taken on the form of a servant and, and being reconciled by the gospel and God's changed her heart. I'm like, this is amazing. And, and her tears evidenced a changed heart. And the pastor got up to preach a sermon and said, I can't preach a sermon. He, he just read what I just read to you from 2 Corinthians. Uh, the, the majority of what's happening, the accountability of this moment is enough. So instead of leaving her in excessive sorrow, let's bring her to the front and greet her and restore her into the church. And the whole church stood up. A lot of people were there, lined up in the middle aisle, and one after the other just affirmed and hugged and, and just reconciled. She's reconciled to God, but reconciled her back into the the family of God. So uh, long story short, Judy and I went to the church. We served there for 11 years, had community groups and um, a college Bible study, college singles Bible study that she attended. And uh, she met her future husband there. And then I married them. And then The baby became their baby. He adopted her, raised her. I mean, this is how the family of God works. This is what church discipline does. This is what accountability brings, and this is what restoration is realized to be. It's amazing grace. Number five, biblical Church discipline restoration deters others from sinning. Others from sinning, we talked about that. There's an inbuilt inhibitor when you have these dynamics go public in the presence of all so that everyone will stand in fear. Number six, biblical church discipline and restoration prevents giving God a cause to set himself against a local church. God's judgment is on church. It's on churches that don't do this. You don't care about God's holiness. You really don't care about God. Your social club, your good programs. It's a psychology, psychological wellness center. It's, it's not a church. Revelation 2, 14, um, I have a few things against you. This is the churches that are being spoken of in the beginning of Revelation. You've, set, you've, had, you've had some things there that hold to the teaching of Balaam and Balak. You put a stumbling block in the way of the sons of Israel. 
You're eating food sacrificed to idols. You're worldly, in other words. You're practicing sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. You're trying to accommodate bad practice with bad teaching. Repent. If not, I will come to you, verse 16, soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. We don't want that. You say, I don't want to do church discipline. It'll bring legal accountability. It'll bring the government down upon us. People will bring lawsuits of defamation of character. I'd rather have that than Jesus come with the sword after us. Don't want God's judgment on us. He has an ear, let him hear. He goes on, he describes the son, the words of the son of God as the one who has the eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus looks into the church with laser-like x-ray vision and sees into the hearts of everyone here. And he calls us to be faithful. He calls us to work the work of holiness within his church. He says, I am he who, verse 23, searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So just to stop there, obedience is extremely important. We want Christ's blessing, not Christ's shutdown. Is discipline too harsh? Well, corrective measures are done in businesses all the time. It's done to athletes who go out of bounds, who have no character. There's malpractice suits with doctors. There's fraudulent lawyers. There's teachers who are not doing what they need to do. There are um, business owners. There's all kinds of things where there is accountability, and there needs to also be accountability within the church, within the church. Churches should practice discipline to bring, bring people back into the flock. That's holiness. Otherwise, we're ignoring the God-given means to be holy. It's God's immune system that he gives to his body. Brother to brother, sacrificial rescue, sister to sister, church to each other, anyone, any sin, any time, spirit of gentleness, drawing them back, restoring them to the family, watching out for your own heart as you do it, building the body of Christ for the sake of holiness, for the glory of God.